Good morning, everybody. How goes by you? Wonderful. That's good. A lot happens between Sundays when we gather on the weekends and all life that happens, then we regather a lot of things you've been doing, thinking about. I don't know all the things that have been on your plate. I know what's been in my life. But I could guess there's something that everyone in this room has thought about this week. I thought about it. I bet you thought about it is money. Maybe you received a bill from the hospital about the ER visit you went into and you're wondering how to pay it. Maybe you looked at your retirement plans and and forecasted what the future looks like this year. Maybe you're moving some of those accounts, hoping to be advantageous with your resources. Maybe you're looking at the credit card bills from Christmas, wondering how did we actually spend that much money on ornaments? Christmas lights. Maybe you're thinking about the new semester and you're having to pay tuition bills. Maybe you have to buy new things for the year ahead. Maybe you're, maybe you're a Colorado camper like me and you love camping in Colorado, but you know that you have to book sites six months out. And so you've made reservations at certain campsites in Colorado that you'll see in July or August. But something this week probably surrounded the theme of money. And today we're picking up right where we left off. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16, verse 1. If you want to open up to Luke 16, there's a Bible in front of you. If you want to use your phone, I encourage you to grab that ESV app from Crossway. Luke 16, verse 1 is going to open up another parable. We're going to pick up where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and his disciples about the kingdom, and he's using parables. And commentators and New Testament scholars point out that this is probably the most complex parable that Jesus tells. Are you excited? It's going to be good. All right. Luke 16, Jesus is going to talk to us about money. Now, does God need your money? No, he wouldn't have given it to me if he needed it. I'm not very good at giving it back. But God really wants your heart. And because we tie our hearts to our money, the Lord will talk, to about mo- will talk about money to access your heart. Okay, Luke 16, verse one. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, He said to the first, how much do you owe your master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master, this is when he hears of it, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation 
that are the sons of light, the children of God. And then Jesus says this, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Make sense? Just close in prayer. <laughs> Let me read a couple more verses. 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Final verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So I, I hear your teaching, Jesus, and we ridicule you. We think you're an idiot for how you think about money. Now, I want to unpack this parable with you. Sounds fun, doesn't it? Before we do, let me just talk a little bit about what parables are. This is the shortest music stand for the shortest person. <laughs> what, or if you've been around Calvary for a while, we, we talk about how to read your Bible. One of the things I love about Chris Barnes and the student ministries and, and Solomon and Lindsay is they don't, even they don't only teach what the Bible says. They teach, well, how do you read your Bible? Because you want to be able to take your Bible home and read it for yourself. And so how do you read parables? What is a parable? So let me just unpack a few principles here. First, what is a parable? The word parable literally means to set alongside. It's a metaphor. We use metaphors all the time to describe something that is real. You're setting alongside a visual image of what is reality. We might speak of an individual as someone who has a heart of a lion, a heart of stone, a heart of gold. All of those metaphors describe what is reality of an individual. And so Jesus uses parables to set alongside a reality. Now, what is that reality that the parables are set alongside? Well, they're who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to. Jesus is the son of God to bring the kingdom of God near. And then he tells parables to describe what Jesus is really doing and what the kingdom is really like. There's a New Testament scholar by the name of Tim Mackey and and Mackey kind of gives these three categories of Jesus's parables. The first category of a kind of parable that Jesus gives is a parable about the nature or ethic of the kingdom. I'm going to lay aside next to an ethic of the kingdom, a story about the kingdom. Another example is the value system of the kingdom. These are the parables that, that turn on its head the value system of the world compared to the value system of God's kingdom. The third category is about crisis. A crisis occurs when the kingdom draws near or it creates a crisis in which something has to be done. A decision has to be made. In those three categories, the the kind of parable we're dealing with is the parable of crisis, that the kingdom causes a crisis in which someone has to make a decision how they're going to respond. 
That's one principle. So there's different kinds of parables to set alongside the reality of who Jesus is and what he's up to, to share the ethics, values, or the crisis sometimes that the kingdom brings. There's another New Testament scholar, his name's Craig Blomberg. Blomberg used to teach at Denver Seminary, recently retired. Very thankful for his instruction in my own life. And Blomberg would, would teach that you don't wanna allegorize every single detail of a parable. Usually there's a main point there are a number of main points that coincide with the number of main characters or objects within a parable that Jesus tells. So for every main character or main object, there's a main point to be made. How do you know it's a main character or main object? Is if you were to remove it from the parable, you really couldn't tell the story or even understand the story in itself. And so there are some, some parables that have like four characters. You think of like the four soils. The word of God goes out and it lands on four different kinds of soils. And, and Jesus articulates what the word of God is as a main character and then how it lands on four different unique types of soils and makes a point for each soil. You think of the parable we looked at last week. There's probably three main characters, the father, the young son, and the older son. And there are points to be made about who the father is, who the young son as a lost son away from the house is, and the older son as a lost son within the house there's a great principle we even looked at last week from that parable that here's the merciful, gracious father who will receive his children back no matter what they have done if they come to him. There's no, there's no moral failure that the father cannot forgive. That's a wonderful principle in that parable attributed to the younger son's relationship with the father. So today we're looking at a parable that probably has two main characters, a master and a manager a steward of his, his resources and money. And we're not gonna press every single detail. It's not necessary. Another principle of reading parables is to understand what the context is when they're given. So Jesus gives a parable within a context to a specific audience. So you wanna read up to, to the beginning of who's hearing this parable and then read through the parable of who heard the parable and maybe how did they respond, which will give us clues about what Jesus was talking about. So if you remember back in Luke 15, Jesus started telling parables because the Pharisees, this group of religious leaders who think they have their whole life put together, are upset that Jesus is whining and dining with tax collectors, sinners, and outcasts who seem like their life is all falling apart. They've done all the right things. They've done all the wrong things. Why is Jesus hosting them and not us? And so Jesus begins to unpack principles, the value system, the ethic of the kingdom by telling parables. They're still in earshot. He says, I'm gonna talk to the disciples now, but the, the, the Pharisees are still hearing what Jesus has to say. And, and we read all the way to verse 14, which articulates their response. After hearing the parable, what Jesus just said, they think he's ridiculous in how he views money. They're lovers of money and they don't like the message of money that Jesus shared. So what was the message to religious people in how they handle their money within this parable? Last principle, then we'll jump into it. Is this fun? I hope it's fun for you. It's fun for me. I've been thinking about it all week. The last principle is this. When there's a parable that describes an unrighteous person, and it's gonna be a parallel to a, a, a kingdom principle, it's this, this idea of how much more than, if this is true, should the kingdom people be? Let me show you one example, just two chapters later in Luke 18. In Luke 18, there's another parable, maybe you're familiar with it, of an unrighteous judge. 
And Jesus is going to tell a parable about an unrighteous judge, and he describes him this way. He says, there was a judge in this city that neither feared God nor respected man. Like, this is just a, a bad dude, bad judge. And someone's like petitioning this corrupt judge for justice. And finally, he's like worn down and brings a just verdict. And then says this, will not God give justice to his elect? Meaning, if this is how corrupt bad judges are, how much more so would a righteous, good judge like your heavenly father bring justice to you? Does that make sense? So when we're looking at something that's corrupt, there's gonna be a principle there, but then what's drawn out of it is, if that's true amongst corrupt people, how much more than would your heavenly father, would the kingdom, would be the children of the kingdom operate, all right? So back to our parable. Here's the story that Jesus tells. There's a wealthy man. Now, what probably has generated his wealth is that he's a wealthy landowner because the contracts that we see that come in are based on the return of, of oil and wheat. It's probably set out as, okay, I own this land, I will lease it to you, and this is what you'll owe to me if you harvest oil or you know, harvest olives, if you harvest wheat, I'll take this percentage. And so you sign up the contract because no one is, is, is trying to pay these contracts at this moment. It's what will be due in the future. And so there's a wealthy person who probably owns land and he has a manager of some property. Now in the first century, wealthy people were not viewed in good light. They probably assumed to be corrupt, unlikable, in with the government. But this wealthy person must have some good reputation in the community because members from the community are concerned that one of his managers is wasting his money. And so news comes to this rich man that this manager is wasting his possessions. Now, we're not totally sure if that's the corrupt part or if it's, he's a bad manager with money. Like you have a financial planner. You opened up your last year statement. You lost me money. I'm gonna go get a new financial advisor because I have a financial advisor to make me money. Could be simple as that. But he calls him in and says, listen, the way that you've handled my possessions disqualifies you from continuing to be my manager. And so you're fired. He says, get the books in order and bring them to me. Now, if you're gonna fire someone who has access to your accounts, do you give them time? This is just a business principle. Don't do that. So he knows I have a limited amount of time to make a decision. What am I going to do? And he thinks, I can't dig. I'm not strong enough. I'm too proud to beg. What will I do? This is what I'm going to do. And this is his scheme. He's so clever. He says, you know what I do? I have a limited amount of time and I still have access to my master's resources. I'm going to call in their debtors and I'm going to change what they owe to my master." so that when I no longer hold this position here shortly, I'll be in their good graces and they'll let me stay with them. That's what's called street smarts. That's what Jesus recognizes as being shrewd. And so he calls them in and says, okay, how much do you owe? This is what my contract says, cut it in half. This is what my contract says, cut it by 20%. Now, here's when parables often get interesting, is when you expect something to happen, and just the opposite is the response. 
How would you expect a master who has learned that his manager has mistreated his possessions and you've just learned that he's a sliced contracts? What would the manager do next? He's already fired him. What would he do? He'd kill him, have him arrested, like put, a, put him away, right? That's not what the manager, that's not what the master does to the manager, does he? Check this out, verse eight. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. It's like, you are a clever one. Well done, young manager, well done. He commends him for his shrewdness, for how he cleverly took care of himself, that he understood that money could be used as an instrument, even if it wasn't his own, to secure his future. And then Jesus uses this bad example. Is this, is this a good example? Is Jesus like, go do that. Is that what's going on? No, he's using a bad example. Okay, this is how the people in the world operate. And we're like, yeah, that's about right. This is okay. Jesus says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Sons of light are the, are the children of God. Like the world understands the use of money and what it can do for them better than the children of light. Like the children of God need to learn something about how to use money from this corrupt manager. And we're still like, I don't get it. So then he makes this imperative. This is the statement. This is the point of the parable right here. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And we're still like, what? See, parables are not just cute children's stories. They're messages of the kingdom for the people of the kingdom to understand how it works. And so there's some teaching that needs to happen for those who follow the Lord to understand the ways of the Lord. So what he says here is, I tell you, make friends. The first thing is the object of using wealth is look how he made friends in all the corruption and his scheming, but you, I want you to make friends. I want you to use something to make friends. And he says, use unrighteous wealth. Why does he call it unrighteous wealth? Well, it's because it's the currency of our world. Our world is unrighteous. The currency that's in our world is unrighteous. Like, like money's not the root of all evil, but the love of it is. And you just think about the ways in which money is used to do such perverted things. It's unrighteous in how it's spent. But there's a currency, it's of this world that you can use for a short period of time because it will fail. When it fails, it says. So use it now, but it's gonna fail. Because the currency that we use right now, dollars, US dollars, does not work in heaven. Chuck Smith, one of my favorite analogies of his, he's like, God doesn't care about gold. They use it in heaven for asphalt. It's like, yeah, that's true. But I think of it as, you know, when you travel abroad, you exchange US dollars for foreign currencies. And so I've been in Haiti, I've been in Brazil, and, and you're leaving a mission trip or time with local pastors, and you, maybe you still have the local currency. And you think, this is absolutely useless back home. 
This week I was over at the Laughing Goat in Boulder and they have a bowl of international currency, just money sitting on the counter as decoration. No one's taking it. Do you know why? It's worthless, essentially. You'd have to go and exchange it so you would have a currency that works. And so when I'm leaving those countries, it's like, I'll just give extra amount. I'm gonna use it in an advantageous way, in a generous way to maybe bless the last church that I'm with. Or maybe it's the, the last waiter or waitress that, that cares for our table. Or maybe it's the last cab driver to the airport and to say, you know what? This is no good in the country I'm going to. So you just use it. And they think, wow, thanks, friend. And so this is what Jesus is saying is you have resources, money. Everybody does. I don't know how much you have in your bank. I don't know what you've bought with it, what you possess. I don't know what's in your 401k. You have it. It's going to totally fail. You cannot take it to heaven. But there's a way to use it now for kingdom purposes. That you would win friends, not, not friends that would supply dwellings now. Like, I got to take care of my retirement for 20 years. Who really cares about that? That's not the essential. How about where you retire for eternity? How about having friends in eternity where they're like, remember the ways in which you gave brought me the gospel. And I heard about Jesus Christ because of the missionaries you sent, because of the church that sent these missionaries, because of the organizations that you supported, because of the Bibles you sent into my country, and they welcome you into heaven as their friends. Ray Ortland, a teacher in Tennessee, New Testament author as well, he points out, you know, we get it on the front side. Like here's the funeral as you're ushering someone out into eternity. Like you've all been at these funerals where, where people are celebrating the life of someone who was generous with their possessions. You say, oh man, she was just incredible. Like she always gave a little bit more, maybe more than she even was able to give to me. And like, so, so she helped my family. She clothed my kids. She was always generous with um, her house. She welcomed me into her home. He was so generous. I remember one time he paid this bill that I didn't know how to afford and, and he gave generously. And at this funeral, we say, what a friend we've lost. Then we've been at funerals where it's like, Nah, I'm glad they're dead. You know, it's like, they're just so selfish. Like, they just never cared. They would, they would my dad, my mom, my aunt, my uncle, this is my grandfather. They, he would never, she would never. And then Ray's just like, just flip, the, flip that over there. It's like, at that funeral, when you're ushering them out, people are bringing them in. And they're like, friend! I remember I was, I was just two years old and, and you took me as a, a, a sponsored kid with Compassion International. And because of your sponsorships, I, I was educated and I was clothed and I was fed and I was brought to church and I heard Jesus and I knew who Christ was and it transformed my community and we're all in heaven and we're waiting for you. Thank you. Thank you for the ways in which you used an instrument of money that was going to fail anyway for eternal purposes. And Jesus is saying, see how these corrupt, shrewd managers recognize a few things. Their time is short. His position's ending. I am not going to be employed here much longer. What could I do while I have just this much more time? Newsflash, spoiler alert, 
your time on the planet is ending. You're going to die at some point. And so you get to make decisions in this window of time how to live. This is the crisis the kingdom brings. Now that you know what the kingdom is and who the king is, Jesus Christ, is going to bring a crisis upon you. What do I do with this short window of time I have? I've been fired from the planet. But I still have access to my master's resources. They're not mine. Look how these corrupt people wheel and deal. Surely the children of light can figure this out. How do we leverage the things that our master has benevolently given us, some more than others, for the purposes of the kingdom? And so the principle simply, in my own words, is this. Money is an instrument. We use instruments. Money is an instrument for kingdom purposes. And so I was asking you, when you think about the the ways in which money came into your life this year, how you spent money, could this just join some of those thoughts? How do I use my money as an instrument for kingdom purposes? To take care of the widows and the orphans, to take care of those here locally and abroad. That's why I love being in this church, because there's so many generous people in this church. That's why we celebrate what God has done through you in the heart of Advent. And more than $150,000 comes in to plant churches, more churches, more gospel-proclaiming churches in the front range. Would you like to see more churches in Boulder County, in the Denver metro area? Yeah, it'd be awesome that people would come to know Christ and they're going to exist because we financially gave to that. We're going to win friends that will welcome us into eternal dwellings. And then if this thing about this last year, our staff got together this, this week we were just celebrating all the things that God had done. And one of the things I, I, would, I kind of forgot about, I'm just embarrassed to say this, don't tell my boss, aka the elders. Um, I kind of forgot we gave away a quarter million dollars to all those people that were impacted by the Marshall Fire. Remember this? We said, you've been so generous to fill a benevolence fund. We want you to give it all away. And so who do you know who's been impacted, who's lost a house? Why don't you... Take a check from Calvary Bible Church and say, hey, listen, you're not alone. God sees you and a community of Christians want to bless you. And I'm part of that community. And there were like 160 checks that went, 160 individuals who lost their home or impacted by the the fires last year were blessed financially from a church, just giving away money. Why? Because we are stewards who know our time is short The resources are not ours, and we're winning people to the kingdom. Just give it away, man. It's awesome. This is the kingdom principle. And so the first thing that we learn from this is just money is an instrument for kingdom purposes. If this is how corrupt people use money, and they're clever, and they're they're so advantageous and shrewd, how much more shall the children of light, the people who understand eternity, where this thing's going, use their resources for eternal good. The second thing that it teaches us again is that we are stewards. We're stewards, we're not owners. So be a steward of God's resources. He says right here in Luke 16, you know, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, okay? But if you're not faithful in anything that's lent to you, why would I give you anything to own? Kids in the room, teenagers in the room, I'm going to tell you a secret. 
if you treat your parents' possessions really, really well, you earn their trust to have your own. Like the reason mom and dad are always like, oh, this is why we can't own nice things <laughs> is because we keep breaking everything. I'll tell you, if you're like 13, 14, 15, 16, it's like, okay, I got to leverage mom and dad for a car anyway, or maybe to help me out financially with a car or let me even have my own car. So I'm just gonna be like, hey, mom, can I like vacuum your car out? Would it be okay? Maybe we go to the car wash and we get this thing all washed up. Maybe I'll wash it out in the driveway. Got to take care of our cars, don't we, mom and dad? And it's like, yeah, look how well they take care of my car. I bet they're going to take care of their car. They should have a car. You're like, yeah. Maybe that's not the principle. But it's an observation. If we're bad stewards of the small resources God gives us now to use, and all we do is just spend it on ourselves and, and just keep building up our own little kingdoms and we're not blessing other people with it. Man, what? I don't want to give you more. Like, it's, not, it's not going where I want it to go. And so one of the principles here is that we want to grow in generosity. People often ask, what is the percentage to give as a Christian? I don't know. Let me just give you this principle. Give more this year than you did last year. It doesn't mean just the Calvary. It means, can we always be growing in our generosity? Maybe you've never given to the church. Maybe you've never sponsored a kid. Maybe you've never supported a missionary. Maybe you've never blessed a, a woman uh, in, a, in a third world country who's, who needs education, her secondary education. And we just say, start. Like if you give 0%, maybe try 1% on. If you don't sponsor any kids, maybe sponsor one kid. Maybe if you sponsor one kid, maybe sponsor two kids. The question is, can we be growing in our generosity? So I don't even know what you give. I would just say as a steward, if you're going to be faithful, if you've been faithful in the little that he's given you, wonderful. Why don't we just keep growing in that? Let's just grow in generosity as stewards, not owners. Because one day heaven is when God gives us himself for all of eternity and we get to really be almost like owners there with him, like servant owners there. But he gives us that possession that will never be taken away forever. And so the principle here is just continue to be a steward of God's resources. You're a manager. And I think we all can just resonate with the manager and say, man, if God called me into account of how I've used all the resources that he gave me oversight of, I think I might be in the same boat. I'm so glad the master is merciful. So glad he's merciful. Deals with me in mercy. So that, those are two. And this is the third one here. Jesus makes it so clear, right? You cannot love so you cannot serve God and money. That's it. You can only have one master. And even though the manager was overseeing his master's wealth, was he serving his master or himself? He was serving himself, wasn't he? You can't do it. You can't, you can't do both of these. Mammon is the word of, of the God of money. You can't serve them both. So you got to choose. Either you, you serve God or you serve money. And I put it this way, that you would trust God, not money. That's, that's why we serve it. It's because we're putting our trust in it, right? That's, because we, that's why we love it because we're trusting it to satisfy us. That's why we love it because we think it's our security. And I would just say this whole thing is flipping it upside down saying, trust God, trust God, not money. Like in, in, the, in the corrupt sense, he, he figures out, actually money's not that trustworthy. You know what I should invest in? It's people. And he does it for his life now. How much more so would the children of God say, man, if you're going to do value assessment, money or people. Let's just give it all to people. 
and then win friends for eternity for the kingdom of God. So that just transforms their view of what really matters. And that's why the Pharisees who, what, they, what does it say? The Pharisees who were lovers of money. See, all the lovers of money, when they hear that the kingdom people are supposed to just, just give it away, they're like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And the kingdom people say, well, Jesus gave himself to us that we might be with him for all of eternity. He came to win friends, children of God, to welcome into eternity. That's the mission of Jesus Christ. How much so would the children of God be on mission with the Lord now? Knowing our time is short, we have access to the master's resources as an instrument to win people for kingdom purposes. That's what we're doing with it. It's not our master. And so we just, we just conclude and I say, you know, do, do we trust that, that money can save us? Can money save you? No, money can't save you, right? I mean, this, this is where it can get a little sideways where you get to these passages about money and giving money and you get some televangelists that are like, all right, friends, like 1995 saves you, you know, gets you a salvation. Or they're like, trying to get your money from you. Like, that's not my private jet. That's the Lord's private jet. I'm just a pastor. <laughs> that's not what we're doing. We're just walking through a parable in which Jesus confronts religious leaders who love money, who trust money. And he says, let me, let me give an example of how corrupt people use it. How much more so the children of God to use these resources for kingdom purposes. And so we don't trust money. We don't even trust our merits. Like if we were held into account of how we've used the resources, I'd already told you I'd, I'd be fired, right? So what do we trust? What's the only thing to trust? Is the grace of Jesus Christ. That's it. The only thing to trust is the work of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that matters. And so maybe you've been a pretty good steward. Maybe you've been just the worst steward. Maybe you failed spectacularly in your life. There's one thing that everyone in this room can trust, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to have the worship team come back up here, and we're going to sing a final song. And, and maybe you don't know the song. Maybe you do. If it's a new song, maybe you listen to the words. But may this be our anthem as a community of people of what we trust more than anything more than material possessions, more than our strength, more than our wits, more than our cleverness. We trust the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ alone. And that's it. So would you stand with me? And let's, let's sing this out as our final song today.